Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Hoytari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who has a burning hatred for all grocers. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and uh, uh, grocery stores are are just dumb. I mean, I agree. for about six months, for about six months uh, at the beginning of uh, of Ohio's marginal lockdown. Certainly locked down more than other places, but not as much as they probably should have been. Uh, for about six months, um, every time I went into my local Giant Eagle yeah. uh, grocery store to buy groceries, every single time I went in there, uh, Kate Bush's Running Up That Hill was playing <laughs> basically the entire time I was inside to the point where I began to believe that was the only only song. In the universe? Before we get into the movie this week, I've got I've got two things I want to talk about. One, Donovan Hill is joining us this episode. Welcome, Donovan. So hey. glad to have you. Thanks for having me back Hello. from the other uh, my other <laughs> I don't know bugbear whatever you want yeah. to call it like yeah, uh, yeah. samurai stuff and lacare uh, stuff is my other yeah absolutely uh, like contractually obligated wheelhouse uh, <laughs> stuff I, I guess going on here. I have I am presently looking at my bookshelf full of. <laughs> his books and i would say um just as an opener i think arguably hands down this is uh and i will sort of cheat here by limiting it to like one and done theatrical adaptations <laughs> i think this is the best lacare adaptation and then hot take alert uh i think that the second one is probably a most wanted man which was Philip Seymour Hoffman's last role. Oh, interesting. Okay. Uh, a, which is kind of a wild swing since that's very much, uh, you know, quote unquote, modern day post 9-11 Lacare, uh, as opposed to his sort of Cold War heyday. Yeah. But um, I, I really do think that this uh, pretty well nails uh, the book, even though there are some departures uh and also i think it does something sort of interesting in that it just skips the first book which is a like direct predescent to the entire plot uh but we'll get into that i guess when we yeah, get yeah, into the episode yeah. we'll, we'll get into that a little bit more before we get into that i do want to talk about our patreon patreon.com slash lost in criterion over there for a uh, dollar a month you get access to a bonus episode uh, you get to vote on what that bonus episode is going to be we put together a themed list usually, though one choice is always, always uh, Kazam, the 1996 children's movie starring Shaquille O'Neal as a genie. Uh, but we watch uh, a good chunk of, uh, of interesting movies over there. Yeah. Sometimes very good movies, sometimes very bad movies. Uh, Donovan's been a, been a guest over there uh, not for a while. Uh, I think the last one you were on over there was... Uh, Monster Squad. Squad. Uh, no, no. After Monster Squad, we did do Ready Player One, which I feel oh, like yeah, was that's right. Yeah, yeah. And we, and we, January, was that January 2019? I was going to say, that was probably it's, 19. I mean, it's, yeah. It's, uh, 
the entire last year is just a hey let me spiral of the uh, patreon listeners don't fucking watch that shitty movie. <laughs> yeah it's not a, it's it not a good sucks. movie it uh, takes years off your life uh anyway um donovan's also joined us for uh critters 2 uh you were on one of my favorite episodes we ever done uh the uh, the aliens episode was yeah, very one of our was best. very fun with you was that yeah. a um wasn't i forget was the how bad the subsequent uh, alien movies was was that yeah. released as a separate audio file or uh it was i <laughs> i did cut out a big chunk uh, but uh, but my favorite part of that episode is that you you go on a rant about Alien Covenant, particularly uh, for for well over an hour. Yeah, no, it's amazing. And, it's basically uh, that's what the podcast is about. And then reveal at the end that you had not seen that movie yet, uh, which was which was very good. It was a, it was, and I it, I want to just be a hundred percent clear that my opinion I still haven't seen it to this day. And, <laughs> Uh, my opinion, opinion my hour-long opinions about its failings <laughs> and Ridley Scott's failings you, and Prometheus's failings by. are nonetheless uh, like have never been more right. They have only grown yeah, accurate yeah. with time. No, you were your you your your beliefs were valid. I, it was just one of those things where you <laughs> when you got done, I very nearly fell out of my chair. In actual, like I'm not even <laughs> being awful. hyperbolic. I literally awful. almost fell out of my chair. But yes. I released I released a director's cut of our Aliens. I was going to say release uh, the Snyder cut. No, of, it's yeah. it's out there. About People have heard it. It's probably it's the there. best content okay. we've ever made. Yeah. But it is unfortunately just an additional an additional forty five minutes in the back half of the episode. So okay. uh, fair enough. You gotta you gotta uh, you gotta commit. Uh, it's not as not as not as many changes as the Snyder cut compared to the weed and yeah I mean we didn't we didn't we uh, didn't uh, recolor the whole thing uh, think of yeah, so. f- folks at home think of Alien Covenant as uh, let's Joss Whedon I, I really don't want to talk about <laughs> Alien Covenant again think, just think of it as like what if uh, Joss Whedon the person was a movie and that would be <laughs> Alien well we Whedon wrote an Alien movie uh, he did uh, and it also yeah. was bad I mean that's not super surprising, but yeah. I, I there are some parts of that movie that are sort of vaguely interesting, uh, yeah. but oh, anyway, okay, all right, let's let's let go yeah. of aliens. Yeah. Biggest yeah. here, I'll okay. tell you what, the biggest sign that we should have seen decades ago that Joss Whedon was bad, <laughs> other than everything he's ever done ever, uh, was that he. Cast the bad guy whose name I can't think of from the first Crow movie in Alien, uh, in his Alien movie, and that guy is got like maybe ten whole minutes of screen time, if that. I don't know that he had casting decisions in that movie. Uh, well, guess what? He, he could have at least it, but... uh, let that guy like have more screen time because he is a delight. All right, all right, I'll give that. Um... <laughs> You might be blaming Whedon for things he didn't have control over in that particular instance, but I'll allow it. Anyway, patreon.com slash lost in criterion <laughs> if you want to hear Donovan talk about aliens more, because you're not allowed to talk about aliens anymore this episode, Donovan. Fair enough. That's, That's hard, a sensible hard rule right now. If you want to hear uh, <laughs> Donovan talk about aliens more, though, and you become a patron, yeah. we often take suggestions from patrons for... Uh, list of topics. So you could make, you could suggest a, a, a hyper Donovan focused list over there. If if you somehow <laughs> convince us to watch Alien Covenant through voting and 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 
I make the list, so you've got you've got work to do. Yeah, you've got a lot uh, of work ahead. But but if you get, I will make sure that Donovan is on that episode. I promise that. Uh, anyway, <laughs> patreoncom Criterion. Like I said, just a dollar a month, you can suggest lists. We generally take suggestions, honestly, uh, because I don't like to think too hard. Uh, I got other stuff going on. Yeah, listen. Uh, but uh, <laughs> what kind of fucking but, thing you take this for, people? Right. Uh, but. But yeah, and we've had a lot of great user-submitted lists. Uh, usually, if a user submits a list, uh, we also uh, we also invite that invite that uh, that Patreon supporter onto uh, onto the episode. I mean, um, I guess if you really want to talk, if you want to talk to Donovan about Alien Covenant, you know the steps oh, yeah. you need Here to take. Here is his to make home phone happen. number. <laughs> <laughs> you audience members, if right. that is what you want, if you right, specifically, right, right. as a person, want to make that happen, you can make that happen. Basically, basically, I, I, I now realize that unconsciously, this is a response to all of our earliest, all of our earliest iTunes reviews, which the subtext of which, and the subtext of pretty much any Criterion-oriented uh, podcast reviews on iTunes is, this podcast would be really great if I were a host. Yeah. We have given you the opportunity you can be to a host. buy your way yeah. onto the po- podcast for at least one episode. Uh, well, I mean, there's actually, the, we've talked about this before. There's two contexts to all the iTunes reviews. They're actually, they go together, which is, number one, this would be better if I were a host because I read the book that this is based off of. Assholes. <laughs> yes, yes. And the, the problem with the, that the is it assumes that we have infinite time to read books. Yeah. Not not going to happen. I've not I've not read the book this week. No, uh, me neither. I apologize. But we do I, have an I expert have. on. We have an but, expert on today. Yes, we have an expert on, so we don't have to have read the book. Anyway, that is the dollar. That's how here. it works. That, that is the dollar a month here for a little extra $5 a month for people who just feel like we deserve a little extra money. We'd like to thank those people on air. So thank you so much to uh, to Stephen Goldmeyer, our only $5 a month supporter right now. Uh, he's our only $5 a month supporter because the next tier up, I think, is really enticing. Uh, at $10 and above, we do something pretty special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently. I get that printed up on a postcard, write a little personalized thank you note, and mail that off. So if you like bespoke art, head that way. Uh, you like mail, it's good. If you want to see the back catalog of those uh, postcards or purchase one, uh, if you are a supporter and really liked one or you know have never seen them before but, but something strikes your fancy, yeah. you can head over to redbubble.com. And search for Lost in Criterion and all of the back catalog, with one exception. Uh, <laughs> one well, with two exceptions, step. I guess. Two exceptions. One, I don't put them up until. Oh, oh. One, I don't put them up until three months after they've been mailed out to our to our actual Patreon supporters, so that they have a chance to enjoy them on their own. And two, one of them we put up <laughs> uh, was challenged by the Toho Corporation, uh, who I, I <laughs> apparently violated we the, were, the the the. Yeah. Uh, copyright on the, in- the concept of godzilla yes yes the integrity uh, of the of the godzilla brand was infringed upon by pat i'm and still his I, i'm still so, mentally cooking up a special edition of that card where i fix that problem you should, you should. i just keep yeah. putting it off and being i'll get to it someday yeah uh red bubble i mean toho sent a sent down notice red bubble essentially just decided not to challenge it i I was given an opportunity I to justify I it. I can't believe it, yeah. Adam, that uh, I, another right. corporation that hosts right. user right. content just said, 
I'm not even going to look into the validity of this. You could <laughs> right. literally send me a C and D on a back of a Denny's napkin and we would right. just immediately take right. it at face value and not investigate right. it. Right, right. So they did they did allow me to respond and well, I did I was, respond. And they were like, uh, We will allow then, you to send us something that we yeah. won't read and we'll put ba- in the ba- right. basically yes. And that then, is exactly what right, happened. Right. Their response to my response was we That's didn't great. Read it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Other than that, Redbubble's been been wonderful and uh they don't uh i don't know what sort of algorithms they have checking everything but it is very clear from other stuff on redbubble and perhaps even other stuff on our redbubble that uh, they don't have one it is not very comprehensive and perhaps only toho is utilizing yeah it's redbubble like i went there and, and made the mistake thinking to myself well you know i can find our stuff by just typing in criterion the answer is No. no you can't uh, wrong. No, you should. And also, you should actually search not just wrong, criteria but you're also it. under arrest. Right. Yeah. And the fun thing about it is, is if you do that, you discover that a great deal of Redbubble's criterion-related content is literally somebody just taking a DVD cover and putting it on a shirt. Yeah. Like yeah. Yeah. no modifications made whatsoever. No, no, nothing. It is just literally like the Criterion DVD cover and be like, "This is a T-shirt now. Give me Sounds five dollars." Sounds like fair use to me. Yeah, I really think the problem was that I put Godzilla in the description. Probably, actually. I think that was the only, the only oh, thing yeah, that that's, us. Oh, yeah, that's a big old, yeah. uh, their whatever algorithm is just running Control-F Godzilla uh, on the internet <laughs> yeah. at all times. Probably yeah, found yeah. that one. Probably. I mean, there's probably. literally, anyway. the, there is literally in the, mo- the In the Mood for Love cover as just a poster you can buy. That is most certainly not made by uh, anybody oh, who yeah, owns anything certainly. there. That's like the first oh, yeah. hit I get. Yeah, if you... If you want to see that art, redbubble.com and search for Lost in Criterion. Our $10 and above supporters, we also like to thank on air. So thank you so much to Chris Otto, to Jason Westhaver, to Michael McGrath, Patrick Yako, and Adam Speakerman, our $10 and above supporters as of right now. This week, we Condolences are... to those guys. <laughs> hey, listen, they're not dead yet, probably. I don't know. I don't, I don't um, want to make any, uh, uh, you know definitive statements well listen they probably survived the pandemic because they were inside listening to alien covenant (laughs) (laughs) good episode uh this week we are talking about as donovan said a uh john lacari adaptation timely right yeah when did uh he he passed recently the last two months i think yeah um well not quite actually december december but well i mean okay Time has no meaning now in this Time, landscape we that's live fair. in. That's December, fair. you say, so yesterday, or yes. 20 years from now, or both. We are recording this in mid-April, so it wasn't, uh, it wasn't that long ago, but it was, it was more than two months. In any case, uh, The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, uh, he published in 1963, and this film was made in 1965, directed by... Quick turnaround there. Yeah, pretty quick turnaround. Directed by uh, Martin Ritt. Uh, Ritt was an American director uh, who hung out with a lot of leftists, uh, but played his own uh, played his own politics pretty close to the chest. Uh, he uh, he describes himself as having a humanitarian view as far as his politics. Okay. I'm struggling to f- to figure out how one can have a humanitarian point of view that is not 
like okay, well, let's not get into this. But listen, mentally, I I, I'm I not, can only process humanitarian uh, thought processes in one way, and that that road <laughs> leads to one place, which is like no, no, yeah. I think it's accurate oh, no, to I'm say sorry. I'm that thinking that road... humanist, not humanita- humanitarian. That's my problem here. I will. Uh, I'm senile now. By the way, guys, yeah. just a quick heads up. So I will immediately <laughs> forget this. But so I'm going to put it. I'm going to put moral and ethical responsibility for my senility on both of you. Okay. Um, okay. It's the American way. Uh, I'm I'm Andrew Cuomo. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> the um, when we get to the end of this movie. Uh, so spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie, cause the ending is a bit of a motherfucker. Uh, when we get to the end of this movie and it's sort of gut punch ending, remind me to tell you the time, uh, that this was quasi recreated for me, uh, in, uh, online mul- massive online, uh, multiplayer shooter game that has, I think waned in popularity probably in the last several years. Cause this happened. Probably I, uh, seven or eight years ago, Planet Side Two. Uh, I remember Planet Side Two. In but which how my, did this get recreated? Uh, in which my player you know character. What? You know what? Let's uh, just go ahead and lay this out right now. Okay. I, I can't. I can't come back to this later. Please. Yeah, okay. No. Uh, I had a couple of different accounts on Planet Side Two because you have to make basically a different account for each uh, character, which I think is. Okay. Probably, I don't know. I've never played WoW, but I presume that's fairly standard uh, to track their progress and unlocks and all that other crap. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I had one for each of the three factions and um, my, I forget, I think it was, yes, it was uh, whatever the purple one, the bots, the purple one, the purple tech alien. One. <laughs> sure. Uh, and I already used all of my fairly standard D rigmarole uh, internet call signs that, you know, from aim chat, names uh that i've been using for 20 years or whatever <laughs> yeah uh, I'd, I'd already burned through all those in the first couple of accounts so my uh third account was alec lemus rides again okay <laughs> which is uh not real or possible uh on account of spoiler alert for those at home he gets fucking murked at the end of this movie <laughs> he does uh, and uh i had a so i was playing in a uh, you know we were fighting on one part of the map around a you know, a, like a base or a facility or whatever you want to call it. And there was a very sort of intense war happening um, in this little spot. And it was only probably 15 to 20. It was like more of a like dedicated skirmish because there was probably only like 10 to 15 of us uh, of the two factions that were like fighting over this smaller outpost. But it was very intense. Like everybody was respawning and like, you know, it was burning hot, although very small scale. So, you know, I had killed, you know, and been killed uh, a bunch of times by, you know, the same people sort of a thing. And we had just basically won. Like the cap, uh, the cap was, uh, you know, the point cap was going our way. And it was like, you know, seconds from clicking over to us. And it, you know, duly did uh, in a second there in here. Uh, And we won the, you know, won the battle and took the base, right? Right, literally right before, like, you know, with one to two seconds to spare, such that, and again, the, whoever this person was, and I should have written their username down and framed it. <laughs> the timing, the beauty of this moment is almost impossible to overstate. Whoever was on the other team waited in such a way so that when they shot me, 
I would, as the camera, like, is the death cam that's just, like, sky, in the sky, looking down at your dead body. Yeah. Uh, and then, you know, the your team has one text, like, you know, pops up in big text over the screen over <laughs> my dead body. Sent me a direct, so opened up the chat menu. <laughs> yes. Sent me a, like, one-to-one direct chat and typed in, Time to come in from the cold, put a round sniper round through my head, right as my dead body then sees the my team wins. Oh my god. So they not only <clears throat> got the reference good. and knew what happened at the end, they timed it perfectly such that my death would mean I didn't get to participate in the victory. And it I could only, you know, my dead body just sat there while the while we won the base. That is very good. I, I, that's, I, that's I am glad. I, uh, yeah, I, I was like doing the, the uh, Citizen Kane, like it, intensely standing up and applauding a uh, GIF, <laughs> like in my in my living room on that one, because I was like, not just that they sent me the message and timed it perfectly and one shotted me, that they did it in such a way that like I could only pyrrhically stand by as my team won and not share in the victory, and and that they had they had in fact made the last half an hour of my struggle completely meaningless and I didn't even get anything out of it. All right. All anyway, right. sorry. I do I do love that. Uh Pat to to your point before the story, I uh I I may have been misremembering. Ritz says he has a humanistic bias okay. in his policy. Well see that's what that's where okay. Um, so if it is that well that yeah. makes it worse, right? Because there's what there's, does that even mean? Well I mean humanism has a very specific definition and it is it is it is at the very minimum left okay yeah. like uh well that is that is all to say i don't i think i think that uh rit was essentially just trying not to be public yeah. about his political views. yeah i mean here's yeah. the thing yeah. he is also he is also the director of norma ray uh so like his uh he has he has made politically left movies right uh I mean, but, I, I will say that humanism as a term gets reappropriated fairly often, uh, but it does tend that's to, also to be fairly hard left. So, this is a guy who who was blacklisted. Uh, this is a guy whose uh, major mentor in movie making was Elliot Kazan, who named names. And then made on the waterfront to justify making naming names. Speaking basically. of Orson Welles, great interview with him where he motherfucks that guy, but good for for that yes. specific thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and like uh, calls him a snitch and a coward. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, so so Rit and Kazan had been friends, and then when Kazan named names, Rit stopped being his friend. Uh, they had a falling out. Um, Correct so, move. Yeah. So I think Rit. Uh, I think it's it's safe to say Rit had had left views that he sort of felt like uh he didn't want to be public with them necessarily. And a lot of his movies are fairly apolitical it seems. Um I've not seen a lot of them, but Norma Ray is definitely not and this is this is something else. Uh, entirely, it is not. It is certainly not an apolitical movie, right? Um, what, whatever else it is, uh, but yeah, as I said, uh, 1965. This came out quick, pretty quick turnaround. Uh, Carre, Le Carre himself um, 
worked on the script a little bit. Uh, did some punch-ups which, on dialogue. Which as far he as uh, famously did in a lot of his stuff. He was a, um, at least from interviews with him, he discusses that he had uh, kind of a mixed uh, relationship with a lot of his cinematic adaptations. Uh, mo- probably most famously the Tinker Tailor mini- BBC miniseries with Alec Guinness. He mm-hmm. would frequently go down to set just to kind of watch people do their thing and, um, he said he would try to stay out of the way, but he also, uh, I know, had some some degree of input on some of the scripts and stuff. Although not as much as you would uh, maybe think, uh, since um, in particular, uh, the later Gary Oldman adaptation of Tinker Tailor is wildly to the point of being, I mean, I don't I don't even know how to say this, is, is basically... Uh, the way I describe it, because I actually really love that movie, and uh, Gary Oldman was thoroughly robbed at the Oscars that year. Um, yeah. But I, I, if someone said, how would you rank that as an adaptation, I would say it's a terrible adaptation of the book since it doesn't have enough breathing room. It wildly elides, condenses plots. It changes major character personalities uh, in the interest of condensation. Um, it just completely changes uh, some character ages and stuff. Uh, it makes Benedict Cumberbatch, Peter Gwillem gay, which uh, in the book, he is literally like most of Peter Gwillem's uh, solo scenes in the book feature him and the young lady, uh, like flute or violin concert player that he's uh, seeing. Right, right. Uh, so like there's wild changes all over now, that did movie. They- did but they I, eliminate a different queer character in order to... No, there are no... There's no gay characters in the book. Okay. Now, yeah. I actually think... So what I tell people is it's a pretty bad adaptation of the book just because it doesn't have enough time. And as a result, it just starts wildly cutting or condensing things uh, in a way that to make it fit into a two-hour... What was, you know, what is probably five and a half, six-hour BBC miniseries into a two-hour movie. Right. Um, However, I think it is an excellent Lacare like writ large adaptation. Like the Gwillem being gay and having to burn his life down because of his work, like in the scene in that movie where he there's a bit where uh Gary Oldman smiley says, if you know, somewhat double double meaningly, if there's anything left you need to finish up before we enter the next phase where things are gonna get real dicey, now's a good time. And then cut to him breaking up with his live-in boyfriend uh, mm-hmm. basically to be like, nobody can be close to me right now. I can't have, and especially, you know, at this point in Britain, I cannot be discovered to be gay, A. And yeah. B, I cannot, like, not just my own intelligence agency that we are basically in a Cold War against, but obviously the Russians. Like, I can't have them figure out who this guy is and either use him against me or kill him or whatever else. So right. uh, that that part of, like, that he is living this tortured, miserable, private existence uh, and that, you know, the, the overarching theme of Lakar stuff, that uh, the intelligence services are a place where demons are made, where, like, just normal people are turned into awful monsters and, the, and it attracts awful people cynical evil monsters and makes them worse and anyone who isn't one of the above inevitably is chewed up and destroyed yeah. uh 
and that it is there is no there are no good people by <sighs> definition in intelligence work um mm-hmm. which is partly why his own career in it was fairly short um yeah. because by this point that he's releasing the book in the early 60s he was basically already out of intelligence work uh because he and, and in fact as i recall he had had some uh like there was a fair amount of uh editorial control over the novel with regards to changing names and sort of adjusting plots and uh, plot points and plot details and so on. So as to not bear any as direct resemblance to actual uh, espionage operations that Lucare had knowledge of uh, and also hence the pen name because they did not want him publishing under his actual name. Yeah. What is his actual name? I don't actually know. Uh, David Cornwall, I believe. What a great name. And they wanted him to have a sort of like they, they, it's sort of funny is listening to interviews with him. And I could be misremembering some of the details because it's been a long time, but he, I think published his first novel call for the dead, which is a way more Agatha Christie style murder mystery, uh, than it is an SP like it's set starring smiley. Uh, and a lot of the prototypical smiley stuff, the cheating wife and and his sort of bizarre nature and, the, you know, the fact that he is this like sort of um, intrinsically uh, naturally excellent uh, intelligence uh, and espionage operative by virtue of the fact that he is a like humble, unassuming, unflashy, methodical, slow, quiet, you know, sort of awkward and reserved guy. Uh, as compared to James Bond, uh, that stuff had already been was getting worked out. But the but it was way that the intelligence stuff was more like ancillary setting in the first book. But it is all about him eventually hunting Munt, who shows uh-huh. up in this, who has killed a member of the uh, who has killed a guy. Uh, and there was, and, and it's Smiley is basically tasked with figuring out how this guy got murdered. I see. And I think Gwillem, like, it's also a, I think, you know, early Peter Gwillem appearance. Uh, Gwillem doesn't appear in this movie, but is a, is another one of the regularly returning Lucare characters who's sort of Smiley's, uh, right-hand man, lieutenant sort of character in subsequent books. And then later goes on to have novels of his own. Yeah, Smiley's the the common thread between like yes. what a dozen books, I think. Yeah, oh yeah, way more than that. Uh in yeah. so much so that um uh, the copy of this novel that I have has a George Smiley novel, you know, obviously a reprinting, uh you know, yeah. a later publishing where by this point in Lacar's career, Smiley is like is the main recurring thread and therefore even though he has a bit part in this book Right. That is the that is the advertising copy hook, uh, regardless. Interesting. Yeah. Um very interesting actually. So yeah, I actually highly recommend sorry, to the long story short, I really do recommend the twenty eleven Tinker Taylor because I think it is an excellent film about the themes and motifs and characters of Lacar in Lacare in general. I just it is like if you're looking for a good adaptation of the novel with a lot of like word, you know, one for one word to word dialogue maintained, then obviously the Alec Guinness BBC miniseries is the way to go. And if you're, if you're doing that, dear listener, do yourself a favor, find, do find the actual uh, original BBC cut 
and not the American cut <laughs> or box set. If you're looking at a box set or something of that nature, wherever you're, you know, wherever find torrents find or sold, box set. <laughs> uh, there you go. Do not do not get the American one uh, because it cuts out for for no particular reason. I think just because they wanted to condense it into American broadcast length, it slices out several major scenes. Huh. Just to get it down to like a 50 or, you know, 42 minute or whatever it is, American. So it's like five American episodes, but six British. Oh, interesting. so interesting. Find, try and find the original cut if you can. Anyway, sorry. Yeah. No, no, that's all. That's all very. This is why we asked you to be on this episode. Yeah, because right? I know nothing <laughs> about the topic, basically. <laughs> right. I mean, I've seen the 2011, right. uh, the 2011 Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, but like that's probably almost the limit of my experience uh, since we have you and and on the topic uh what is your favorite adaptation of any of the Lucari work uh i do think the bbc miniseries is great um yeah i think this is great i think that um uh i i really like most wanted man i think it has uh one of the it is uh it, you know Fitting, if it's going to be the Philip Seymour Hoffman last performance fitting, it was this because he goes out on a real banger. Yeah. Um, the last scene of that movie in particular is incredible uh, with him. Um, uh, in the foreword to, uh, you know, a later printing of the novel that is now using the sort of movie poster for the book cover kind of a thing. Uh, Lacar says like you could see it at the time he was bur- he was like burning up from with like he was eating himself alive from within like you could just see it in him on set that he was being consumed from within by whatever demons he had yeah um so uh I, I really like those I um I really love the 2011 Tinker Taylor but again for kind of uh like larger gestalt reasons than because I think it is a good, it's a great film. It's just a bad adaptation of the book. Um, How was the night manager miniseries that it was okay. I do think the night manager, I think the night manager loses a lot by being set in present day. Hmm. And I think it loses a lot because it has a much happier ending. It does. It makes (laughs) the chronic, it it does the thing that like to their credit, a lot of the other Lacare stuff doesn't, change doesn't pull the endings which are usually bad because lakari does a lot of grim morality plays that's kind of the running theme of his work and if everyone like basically you know if the bad guy gets caught and everyone lives happy ever after sort of a thing or you know the good guys get away or whatever it may be like you sort of miss the point so i think the i think the um performances in that are good i think the script is okay um I do think it loses some of the setting by being set in the modern day rather than in the nineties. Cause it's very yeah. much, uh, it was at the time of its publishing kind of like a, you know, a contemporary piece about specifically the immediate post cold war era. Yeah. Uh, and the sort of, and the, like, you know, the, the rise of international, uh, arms, corporate, you know, corporate arms trade and so on. Uh, you know, the the villain, having now won, capitalism is free to become the villain it always really wanted to be, sort <laughs> right, of a thing. Right, right, right. right. Uh, and I think you lose that by setting it in the modern day. Um, 
and they change the end in the book uh the main guy gets caught and like and his handler in british intelligence uh sort of off screen burns a lot of bridges and ends his own career in a desperate attempt to get his overseers that men higher up in the intelligence and uh network and in and more importantly the bad guys that are in the sort of parallel intelligence services inside of britain who he who we find out are in league with and running the main arms dealer villain uh-huh. uh and basically has to like set up a detente of mutually assured destruction with them in exchange for them radioing the bad guy and basically saying do not kill the tom hiddleston character yeah and then he just gets let off on a boat in the middle of the ocean by the villain who says like better luck's next time chap uh and then that's it the bad guy gets away and is free to continue doing everything they didn't stop him uh right you know right. tom hiddleston is blown his life is over uh and the intel his handler who they uh gender swapped to be olivia coleman i think her name is mm-hmm. yeah uh is fantastic uh, actress Yes, uh, is just like their career. They literally burn their career down in, and and go into forced early retirement, all to just save Hiddleston's life, who they roped into doing this. And that's it. And that's how the book ends, because the whole point <laughs> is like, no, you don't stop the collusion of international capital and the government intelligence services. That's the whole fucking point. Yeah, yeah. Like that, and which again, you lose by setting that a by having a happy ending, where in the show. Um, I'm blanking on his name. Uh, Laurie, Hugh Laurie, who okay. plays the bad guy. I was going to say Dr. House. Uh, <laughs> sure. uh, he gets, he like gets captured and arrested uh, in another country because like one of his arms deals, uh, you know, Hiddleston oh. sets up a back, uh, a double cross in one of his arms deals and he that gets captured by out. the mm. militia or something. And interesting. And Hiddleston gets away with the girl uh, like, you know, and that's it, but that's not, that is right, not how it right. uh, happens in the book because the book was very much like, no, this will be how it is from now on, which yeah. is a message that in the early nineties is, has, you know, some, some chronological resonance for its well, political I mean, landscape. Of yeah. The time. I mean, it, it has the resonance. I, I mean, I've not seen this, uh, seen the, the night manager, but like, you know, it, it, I mean, that's still an accurate, uh, understanding of the way, the way the system works right now right, right. yeah yeah it the, just doesn't the, have the, the night manager doesn't really change new. that core yeah. yeah it doesn't change the core conceit of uh it turns out that of course this guy is operating with not just the tacit approval of but the activating and abetting of the western intelligence right. services right. and governments that being um, said that ending you described that change of the ending you described basically makes the whole thing kind of meaningless right because right uh, it's, yeah it, it defeats, defeats the, the purpose whole point, of the entire story like, yeah yes right. it, it, much like uh the film we're talking about the whole point is that the system crushes and disposes of anyone who even remotely attempts to behave even Humanely. not even morally <laughs> just independently within it. right right Right. Because obviously Lemus is not a moral character. And in fact, I think the even better incarnation of Lemus, who I think is is a classic Lakari character, uh, but he has a guy who I think in some ways supersedes him. And I go back and forth on what's my favorite novel. And one of my favorite novels, like, you know, and a perpetual contender for top three 
is a lesser known Lacare that came out a couple of years after this, maybe late 60s, early 70s, called A Small Town in Germany, uh, about which is sort of, and the gut punch at the end of that was like, uh, the, uh, is, is, you know, the theme of the book or like, you know, the big surprise at the end is like, well, yeah, they just fucking put all the Nazis back into German society because better that than communists. Right. right. And if yeah. these guys then continued to behave like fucking Nazis just now with U.S. government approval, oh, well, like or British, you know, with Western ally, right. a tacit approval and understanding that some of your uh, predilections will continue to be indulged. Um, and the guy that's the British guy who is sent in to uncover the initial mystery that then sort of, you know, the deeper he goes, the more he finds that, you know, of course, his own people are behind it. Uh and that the guy he's hunting was disposed of by the installed like concentration camp running commandant who now has a like major position of authority in civic government in this in Hanover or wherever it's set. Um, and but he is a humongous piece of shit. <laughs> I mean, he, there's a bit where he's interrogating a, a you know, equally reprehensible and spoiled sort of bourgeois upper crust woman. Uh, and he's just gets like, he's just sort of quietly seething the whole time because, uh, and in part because she reminds him of his wife who he hates deeply. And in the middle of an interrogation of her, like in the middle of a park, he just hits her. <laughs> and like, it's described as this like cold dispatch. It's not that he loses his temper he just makes the decision that he's going to escalate the methods available to him because he doesn't care anymore. But it's like, and, and at the end, he is left morally outraged that the guy he's been here to track, uh, who he goes from trying to hunt down to trying to save a, a Jewish German guy who has uncovered this, you know, escaped Nazi who was quietly renamed and repatriated back into German government. Yeah. Uh, and the guy just gets murdered at the end of the book. And our our investigator is powerless and, and knows that this man has now been betrayed twice. Like, betrayed by, you know, and has been betrayed not just by letting, by, by the, you know, by letting the Nazis back in the back door. But that to even have this man be in a position to reveal this to, you know, yeah. the wider world is so un, uh, unacceptable that like they will uh, the people who th who quote unquote rescued him at the end of World War II have now assassinated him. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And that's and that and that's just that's how the book ends is him staring down at this guy's dead body seconds too late to stop his assassination. Right. And he is so, just completely uh you know and our main character is just like I you know is so filled with disgust and contempt for the entire world that you know you know he goes on to do nothing good. So what I'm really hearing from you is uh, Lacare is the anti-Fleming. Yes, very deliberately uh, so. Which is really... Which I think so. is partly... A, a, um, I think is partly because he actually did it. Yeah. And granted, and, in, and, and especially in his early works, this uh, A Small Town in Germany, Doi, uh, you know, because I think he even in the forward of Small Town in Germany, he says, like, this is the one that is in some respects closest to my heart because this is 
the setting of this specifically is closest to what I actually did and where I was stationed. Um, so, uh, and obviously is about things I was aware of, which is that like a fuckload of Nazis were quietly put right, back into power right, right. Uh, in Germany by the allies because, uh, better dead than red. Uh, but, um, yeah. he, well, he, uh, his early stuff in particular, I think, and this one obviously about East Germany, um, is, is very the anti-Fleming. And that's partly, I think, because, uh, it was more based on a actual guy's actual experience doing espionage work for the British government, like as a member of MI five or six or whichever one it was, yeah. uh, stationed in Germany. Yeah. Well, Fleming, Fleming was actually, but wasn't Fleming during it, World War II? I can't remember anymore. Yeah. Which would be a very different it, uh, sort of environment to be operating in, right? I can't in remember. any case, in in creation environment, it is interesting that this film comes out after the first two Bond movies have already come out. Fleming's obviously been writing uh, concurrently to Le Carre. And yeah, yeah. This is just <laughs> for for the environment... In 1965, for the environment of what we might think of as as spy uh, fiction, television, and film, uh, this is very different. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, basically, in every way, different, right? Uh, well, and that's that's what I was going <laughs> right, to get at right, when you were right. describing the the Night Manager series. Is that what you described? Almost sort of takes. What you describe, just based on your description, makes kind of turns uh, Lacari's work into sort of a, a sort of James Bond ending. It sounds like, like if yeah, if you know, if your main character again, I I've not seen it, so I I'm a bit confused. I I don't understand a hundred percent where the, the where the bad guy has to be taken down, right? You know, obviously in a James Bond thing, it would be the main character taking right. him down instead of being left afloat or whatnot, right? Um. But but the fact that the bad guy is taken like that notion, is, especially when you get into American cinema, where yeah, in the past we've had rules that explicitly required the bad guy to always lose, but those the sort of implicit rules requiring that have never completely gone away. Like the bad guy, pretty right. unless you're being unless you're making a specific kind of film, in general in American cinema, still the bad guy loses. Right, right. Whereas you know in this film. The bad guy is the entire political superstructure right, right, of yeah, the Cold yeah. War, uh, and you know the the ending is is obviously very very much a downer, but also romantic in that you know. Yeah, I mean, it definitely has that sort back. of a romantic era, sort of like, well, I guess we're all we're gonna die together here. This is yeah. gonna happen. I mean, there is there is that aspect, and maybe maybe even unrealistic to Leem's character in the rest of the film. Well, that, yeah, but I mean, I aspect. guess so, yes or no. I, it's hard to say because the reason why I, I kind of buy into it, I thought about that for a little while when we were watching it, when I was watching it, and then it was like, but at the same time, he doesn't, it's hard to say whether he does it sort of out of romanticism or if it's just out of like, ah, oh, fuck it, I'm done. <laughs> He's just done. Like, yeah. I can't do this anymore. <laughs> like, the, that that's sort of that, that can I mean, be burned out sort of attitude. He has been completely betrayed by... Yeah, exactly. His, like, what am I going to go back to? On every right? level. Like, right. I'm going to go back to this nonsense? Like, 
like he he even told them specifically to leave her out of it and and they've been funneling her money just to create this this story right um yeah he's arguing that he is just done because he's been completely broken through the course of the events of of this narrative um burton on set it's uh it's interesting uh this is this is Burton at perhaps maybe his stereotypically Burton S Burton ist. Um, the most Burton that ever burdened. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, We're before his three bottles a day period, but <laughs> yeah, this is in the second year of his marriage to Elizabeth Taylor, presumably one of the happier moments of his life. Uh, uh, but uh one, there was some conflict on set, uh, principally because he and Claire Bloom, who plays Nan, had had an affair, uh, a relationship uh, years prior to this. Um, so there was some, some tension there, uh, and Burton apparently was taking out his frustration on her. Uh, she writes that... Uh, Ritz sort of she's very vague about her her talk about onset stuff here but she does talk about Ritt sort of coming to her defense um and it seems like it was coming to her defense from Burton other other Burton related conflict is that Elizabeth Taylor apparently showed up on oh. on set quite a okay. lot uh, not, I don't think out of any sense of jealousy or anything, but, but was still a distraction. Right. Uh, so yeah, a lot going on there. Um, but yeah, this is, uh, this character is very much Richard Burton is, is the cynical drunk, right? And, and it's very much that there is a bonus feature on the DVD with, uh, Lacare. Nakari doing a 2008 interview, and uh, and the one section I watched was uh, him talking about where Leems as a character comes from, and it uh, it turns out it's really not based on anyone. Uh, he talks about uh, his he gets so tired of being asked that question that he's made up so many stories over the years that he's not entirely sure he remembers what the actual one is. Uh, he says, and he introduces his backstory for Leems by saying, I don't know if this is an actual memory or a memory I've made up. Right. Uh, but says he was at a London airport once and saw a man, a Peter Finch type, he says, uh, in a trench coat, uh, walking up to an airport bar demanding a large scotch, uh, and pulling out uh, pieces of currency uh, from around the world. Uh, just a guy who is so exhausted, so need to drink uh, before noon, and has no idea what country he's in, he says was the quintessential uh, spy in his, in his mind of what a spy is. Uh, I mean, so, who hasn't been there, though, right? Right, 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 right. The, one of the benefits of flying is that you're allowed to 
no one will judge you for having a, having for a drinking at a really ridiculous hour seven a.m. Reasonable, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I've you know I had a breakfast scotch on a on a first class flight because if you're gonna put me on first class, I'm you're gonna have a I'm breakfast. Gonna take scotch, that free yeah. drink. Yeah, I get you. Gonna have that free drink, right? Absolutely. Uh, but but yeah. Uh, so yeah, Leems isn't necessarily based on anyone he knew personally, though obviously, you know, as Donovan has already said, a lot of a lot of this is is a remix of people he knew and and characters he knew. Um it's uh you know, it's just a really fantastically shot movie too. Yeah, no, right? I, I I love the was really excited throughout the entire film. It's really yeah. well done. The the opening sequence, the the crane tracking shot as we move through Checkpoint Charlie, uh, and then our first interaction with Leems, where the CIA the CIA agent is saying, "You can go to bed. He's not going to show up tonight," and Leems is just completely dismissive of him. Uh, it's always fun to open with a someone being dismissive of American government. I just. I, uh, I'm always on board with that. Right. Um, uh, yeah. And then we are immediately thrust into how dark this movie is going to be as the man, yeah. the man he, he is waiting for, uh, is, is shot to death, uh, as soon as he shows up. Right. I mean, it does a really right. fantastic job though. Yeah. As you said, of setting the tone of the movie, right? Like it, it tells you right away that like, oh, this is a movie where like that kind of thing happens. Uh, right. Right. And and of course that would happen in that that sort of thing might happen something akin to that might happen in a James Bond movie, but certainly James Bond would be at least doing some sort of action sequence to try to stop it. Right? right like he right. might not in be other, successful. But he in other in otherwise unnamed defector right. might die at the beginning right, of a exactly. James Bond movie certainly. And, but but yeah. James Bond would make a valiant effort to stop it from <laughs> happening. Right, running across the tops of buildings. Right, right. I mean, the man, the the defector might very well die, and then that would set off the mystery or whatever of the story, but um, that wouldn't be before James Bond killed at least 20 other people. Right, right. Because James Bond movies are action movies, you know, and this is not not, an action movie. (laughs) Not at all. Um, Nan's character in the novels is named Liz, which uh, everybody was like... uh, with with Burton's wife being Elizabeth Taylor at the time, they're like, ah, we'll just change that name. That'll be fine. <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, they talk about uh, the producers being worried about potential confusion in the media when talking <laughs> about the character <laughs> that people might think they're talking about Burton's wife. Uh, it's very... What a weird, what I don't a weird know. idea. The things people are worried about yeah. in the past are very very weird sometimes uh but yeah um the cinematography here oswald morris though is just there's so much fantastic cinematography yeah in this movie absolutely um, uh i mean the the movie really like throughout they're able to maintain the sort of tone of the story with the with the cinematography as well as the story right like you the the every scene feels so heavy like you feel the weight of essentially these two opposing um political systems just sort of 
bearing down on you as an audience member, I would say, which is yeah, which is yeah. like not something I would ideally qualify as being a great feeling per se, but in a movie where you kind of want to feel like where that's part of the story, it, it, it works extremely well. Yeah. Uh, looking at the other things he shot, uh, one of his one of his final works was The Great Muppet Caper. Oh, that works. Uh, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, that checks out. Yeah. Same, same general idea. Yeah, that's, this is, if anything, <laughs> this is more an adaptation of The Great Muppet Caper retroactively. <laughs> right, I agree. Right, right, yeah. right, right. Going uh, back in time. Yes. I mean, famously, the... the dialogue at the the speech at the end about just what do you think spies are uh, <laughs> right right is you could uh, you could see kermit the saying it. yeah um and also uh that is a scene that is condensed greatly like that speech is broken up in in chunks across a longer like six or seven page conversation that doesn't surprise her me. in the car it is not like he just goes into that monologue but obviously cinematically that monologue is incredible and is the <laughs> Uh, dark heart, emotional right, heart of right, the film, right. uh, you know, laid out bare about, yeah, listen, spies are awful and all we do is bad things and we're nasty, <laughs> right. horrific people. There's no morals like uh, the the uh, the the literal summation of the film, uh, considering his soon to be fate and that like fucking George Smiley, who we are supposed to think of as like, if not the hero, the the understandable protagonist of most of his works is in on this thing that gets him killed. Right. Uh, how big does a cause have to get before you kill your friends? Right. right. Uh, and in and fact, and all the more funny than that, the cause in question is the miserable, awful, morally repugnant cause of the intelligence battle of the cold war. Like not even a, a by definition not good cause, right? Right. That they would kill their own friend, their so called friends for, right? And it, it and I mean it really bears the heart that this is all just power. It's not. It's not any sort of uh, moral or ethical uh, claim. Well, right. Any valid right. moral or ethical claim to that power. It is just the pure exercise of power. Yeah, we are meant to understand as as uh, um, as as the scene with control uh, at the beginning. Well, just because right. our policies are more benevolent doesn't mean our <laughs> methods can't be any less ruthless. And but you right, are supposed right, to sort right. of intrinsically understand. Also, the policies aren't more benevolent. You lying piece. Of yeah, right, right, <laughs> right, like, right. Your pre- your entire self justifying premise is itself a lie. Right, uh, right. Is more right. lies. Well, yeah. and. Um, and, and funny enough, uh, fun trivia, and I don't know if it's uh, if it's in the stuff you may have seen, Adam, uh, but or whether it was in an interview with Lacare I saw once, or maybe it's in the foreword to the book or something like that. But the guy who played Control, uh huh, Irish, yeah, Syracuse, yes, and who uh, like very specifically loved playing a incredibly satanic like a a demon of an englishman a, right, like sure. a absolute sure. evil monster englishman and he yeah. was like he really you know just loved yeah uh, it's a, that that's role. a role you can really get, sink your yeah, teeth because he only right? has what maybe one or two scenes tops it's not a big role yeah but like yeah but, right but he does a very good job but, he's, of you but know. he said like oh he he couldn't have been happier to play that role <laughs> yeah well uh so 
Yes, I thought that was a fun trivia fact. That is, yeah, pretty amazing. It was like, yeah, I will, I will play the Englishman as I see them, which is monsters, inhuman monsters yeah. that eat their own. Um, I, I'm fascinated because you brought up earlier. You know, we were talking about sort of the general thrust of these of these store his stories and the idea of like, if you are good, then this will just, or at least you have good intentions, then this system will just absolutely grind you into paste, right? Oh yeah, there's a there's a running thing that like there is no such thing as a good person in this world by definition, but even the people who might make the attempt to uh which is why again, I think in some respects uh a more interesting character in in a little bit is the the character from a small town in Germany who is a even more nakedly reprehensible and awful person uh than Lemus, like even at the start of the book. Right. Um, he is sent to his assignment in in that book almost as a punishment. Like he is on the downswing uh, in his, um, you know, in his in his career, uh, right. and and this is all, him being sent to this bullshit German backwater to investigate whatever is is you know the disappearance of some minor cultural attaché type of guy is considered a a kind of a punishment. And he is, you know, a bitter, awful person as a result. But the the extent to which he nonetheless finds himself sort of trying to do a morally justified thing inadvertently and eventually like, it, you know, in direct conflict with his own masters is, yeah, is kind of like Lemus on steroids in a way. Right. Well, and I... Well, uh, insofar as that, like, he's even worse than Lemus and... Uh, which makes his attempt to do something decent about this whole thing, and and who and who discovers he really does have a genuine sense of moral outrage at the uh, betrayal of you know the German Jew by their so-called rescuers, right? Right. Like that this is a thing he really does discover. Oh, my morals aren't entire. Like he discovers he's not quite so burned out after all because he can still muster just seething rage and contempt at his own side for what they've done here. Right. Uh, is, is kind of it. But again, he is a nakedly awful person and is never portrayed sympathetically once. Well, and that's, right. and in the car's world, that's the best you're going to get. Right. Right. Is a guy who sort of just by virtue of like, they have, who is so angry and contemptful of even their own side that they sort of stumble into trying to do something decent. Right. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking about that in terms of, uh, I was kind of thinking of that in terms of dealing with a sort of the two, the only sort of two characters we have in this movie that might be considered at least, if not good, at least still possessing some sort of ideals, which would be Nan, obviously. Uh, I mean, and she, Fiedler. And Fiedler, exactly. And Both Fiedler. of whom yes. the system Fiedler just Fiedler is eats the alive. person you feel the most sympathy right, for. Right, absolutely. Even though you understand by definition he has got, his hands are as bloody oh, as Lemus's. Yeah. And he even, but he, and he like proudly admits as much in the scene with, listen, if I have to kill you and the only way I can do it is blowing up a restaurant full of people, I will do it and sit down and calculate how many yards my cause has been advanced in exchange for how many dead civilians. Right. I don't, I don't kid my, I, we do the same thing. I just don't pretend there's some inherent moral virtue to my side. Right. But I nonetheless believe in my side's moral superiority 
writ large over yours. Hence, I'm in this business in the first place. Right. But I really do believe that my side has a, a better moral claim to the world stage than yours. But I don't pretend, therefore, that my work is somehow inherently moral. I get that what I do is the wet work, bloody awfulness, and that I do bad, wicked things on purpose to advance my side. I make no claim otherwise the way you people do, that somehow what you do isn't morally repugnant. Right. 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 And I and that, and that conversation that he has with... Um, Lumaeus really sort of, uh, you know, that is really carries a lot of the more like, you know, there's the ride in the car with uh, Nan that like kind of like hits home sort of the themes of the movie as a whole uh, in a lot of ways. But I think that conversation of Fiedler and Lumaeus as is sort of second to that in terms of like co- uh, sort of reckoning about the idea of what why we even sort of have spies in the first place sort of thing. He's got, he, he's, he's, um, you're, you know, you can tell that Lacar's sympathy is with Fiedler. Right. Uh, not because right. he's a good person, but because he at least, like, is still naive enough to believe in what, believe in the big picture stuff. Right. 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 Uh, he, he really, he is a true believer in that regard. Um, and this is ultimately his undoing because right. he, right. Yeah. He 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 underestimates for all his experience the willingness of his enemy to kill their own to get to him. Right. Which is it's not that he underestimated his his party, uh, who are, you know, not portrayed particularly, you know, the East German communists certainly aren't portrayed as like good, wholesome people here. No. Uh right. but he's like he understands when the chips are like are revealed that his own machine will kill him now, uh, regardless of his service and belief in it, he is now going to be chewed up by it. But what, where, like you know, what leads, what undoes him in the, and allows the machinery of his own apparatus to kill him, is he underestimates that they would, you know, engage in this years long, long con. And sacrifice one of their own most experienced agents at the drop of a hat, as well as just some innocent g- girl, right? Just to just not only just to get him, but in order to protect a humongous piece of shit like Munt, who is the villain in the first book. Which again, they don't well. We don't I really mean, get into here, right? I mean, if there, if you were going to define a villain like that is not a concept in this movie, there are other people you could you can pick, obviously. Um, you know, there's control and smiley and, and them, but but Munt's not far behind, right? Because Munt, like, you know, he is, we as an audience recognize him as a bad person instantaneously, right? I mean, and then he, you know, participates in the murder of Nan in a, in a way that, it, it, you know, it is obviously part of the plan in the first place anyway, but also has this extra level of feeling very personal, just given the way the, the story is written. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, yeah, Munt is someone we, we get to, to, just at the very end, get to, to very much hate, right? So, Yeah. I say there there's an interesting aspect um, to the casting here of of Bloom and Burton in that Bloom is I think 34 at the time 
playing a character who's meant to be in her early 20s. And Burton is 39, playing a character who's meant to be in his late 50s. Uh, they've, they've somehow condensed what what in the book is a sort of May-December thing um, uh, to, uh, to people where I'm not intrinsically weird about them being together is uh is good i guess right uh it's interesting you know the the movie is very uh sympathetic to nan uh perhaps portraying her as naive but still as sympathetic in her naivety right although Um, i mean you know nan is i mean ultimately uh, it's hard to even like couch her as being naive exactly because like why would you ever I mean I guess the I guess the part that makes her mind naive is like why are you getting like your lease paid for yeah. right I mean that's obvious I understand that being naive but like She's naive on a lot of sides though too uh, you know cuz there like she, there's no reason for her to ex- suspect her true reason for being Right that's what Germany. I'm saying is right. that the fundamental thing is something f- so far behind beyond her like realm of calculation that there's no reason we yeah. were like, oh, you you wouldn't ever say about the story like, well, of course she should have suspected she was being called to East Germany to help set up a spy right, plot. Right, like, right. I mean, like, right, no, right. that's silly. Like, if if you thought yeah. that about your life, people would you would rightfully assume you've got some sort of issue with paranoia. Like, right. Uh, of course, the lease paying thing is suspicious. But you kind of get into this one, this thing, right? Like, if you think about the society that she and anybody else lives in, like, it's kind of weird, right? Like, you're, you, like, if somebody just paid for the lease on your, on some, you know, or paid for your mortgage or something, you would be suspicious, but also kind of like, it's a weird position to be in, right? Because you're like, do you investigate this? Will investigating this ruin this? There's been enough story to to quell that initial suspicion right right someone said well it's a charity thing right and uh, you'd be like well what the <laughs> fuck qualified me you know and then at some point you just say to yourself you know what i pursued this enough i don't need yes, to know anymore I am, <laughs> this is a good thing has happened to me and i should and maybe stop i shouldn't questions. ask questions about it <laughs> yeah and and you know maybe that is naive but at the same time if you struggle to pay your bills every month and right. Like suddenly you just have one you don't have to pay anymore. How I mean, how far do you pursue that, right? Like before you're just like, yeah, right. fine, okay, right, cool. That's one less bill I got to worry about. I do in my personal life. I I do not investigate the motives of the people who uh, want to pay off my bills. <laughs> Right, well, exactly. You stupid, because yeah. they're gonna get you shot at the Berlin Wall. <laughs> right. Well, exactly. Well, and that's the thing, right? It's like that's a not per- that I'm I'm not often in that position. Right. Though, that's such so sun- that. fundamentally the repercussions of that are so far beyond anything she could reasonably imagine that it's like, at right. worst, somebody later on tells you that was a mistake and you go back to paying for your lease. Well, I, <laughs> you know again, I mean? with the kind of to go back to Fiedler, we are meant to find Fiedler the most sympathetic. Right, we are right, meant right. to see what George Smiley, and again, a, a little bit of this context is lost if you're just viewing the movie in, in isolation, right? But right. we are meant to view what George Smiley and Control, but especially uh, Control we know is a monster. Smiley, 
after the first first book, we have some degree of sort of sympathy and understanding for. We are meant to see like, no, no, this is what Smiley does for a living. Right. He takes, right. he expends the lives of people like her. And granted, he, that wasn't the part of the plan. They were supposed to get back over the wall. But right. the fact that they didn't is not considered to be a fail state and, and a right, right. Yeah. considered no. an acceptable loss. And you're so you're supposed to go like, oh, God, like they Yeah, they just the guy we spent the whole previous book with and who we are going to spend several other novels with over time. We now understand, like, does not have qualms or at least if he does has qualms, he doesn't really care yeah. enough to act on them with engaging in plots in which like Lemus uh, ostensibly a, a, a you know colleague and friend to him over the years and this innocent girl are just expended yeah violently but, right in front but, of him and it's oh well they are not meant to get over the wall Lemus is meant to get over the wall yes she is always meant to die right so because yeah. it's, it's it's part of moon's plan on their end the guy who shows them where to climb over the wall is the man who shoots her right so you know she is meant to die but but certainly he is meant to get back yes over. anyway but yeah you know and it's well and that's the that's the, a whole other interesting level to the ending in that everybody also expected lemus to just go over the wall after that happened you, you know right. what i mean like right. everybody's plan clearly involved him still leaving and and Everybody has underestimated something in yeah, the thing. It, they underestimated just how burnt out and sick of his, you know, horrific hypocritical existence. Exactly. Yeah. Lemus was Absolutely. that he would just that he would just commit basically commit suicide at the end, allow himself to get killed too. Uh and you know, he underestimates all of his own people obviously that they would that this entire thing is just to get uh Fiedler killed and Moont, who they're all trying to that he hates and wants to kill, uh, in fact keep him alive. Um yeah. Yeah. and Fiedler, who he has come to respect, he has now just signed the death warrant of. And Moont, uh in the first book in Call for the Dead, Moont tries to kill Smiley. He like cr- he like hits him over the head with a pipe or something like that. Like he like yeah. he tries to cave in his head at one point and Smiley goes to the hospital for a chunk there. Like he is. So it is all the more surprising then that like Smiley has again, sort of going to that speech at the end about there's only one rule expediency yesterday. He was my enemy and today he's my friend kind of a thing. Right. Right. That is supposed that, that obviously hits a little harder if you've read the first book where the concept that Smiley would be in on this guy who, tried to kill literally tried to kill him physically put him in the hospital and that smiley is now willing to ex- risk the expenditure of lemus and the absolute death of this innocent girl to preserve this guy who was a enemy agent inside of england and who made an attempt on his life you know the very next year or like you know right. like two years later or whatever it is is what that is- you know has what more is, weight when you realize that, like, God, Smiley was in on this, trying to preserve the life of this guy who tried to kill him. Is Nan really innocent, though? She is a member of that violent gang Antifa. That's true. I, she's she's one of them there reds, and, you know. Yeah. Uh, 
It's uh... she's also a she's also the sort of um perfect sort of sacrificial idealistic lamb in that she has both wildly underestimated the East German Communist Party's uh ruthlessness <laughs> as well as the just like psychopathic indifference to human life of right, right. the British. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean and and that's that that's kind of the sort of sort of the sublime horrible beauty of that entire situation is that like neither side gives a shit about her at all zero percent. no she is like and then and then you can transpose that onto the entirety of the population of both sides in that they don't on an especially on an individual level level care about any of you and and right and really probably even on a vast level like on a broad level don't care at all. I mean, it's all, as you mentioned before, just power struggles, right? It has nothing to do yeah, it's, with the actual maintenance of a, the lives of the people of these societies. And yes, there is a big, like, they are at power. war with each other. The, these, you know, this shadow war is being waged for the sake of itself and its own continuance, not because it even has any, like, you know, if you had to say, um, what did this accomplish? Like this plot to keep Moont alive. What is the material gain? Right. How are the lives of people in London made any better or worse by this? And like, yeah, there's no, of course yeah. the answer is there isn't any. <laughs> right. There isn't any. Bullshit. But it's, but to these people, it was literally life and death. Right. Yeah. And, and so what they we are like, because they are so detached from even the notions that like what they do it's, you know, it's morally is related yeah. to their to the right. national interest anymore beyond yeah. just existing for the sake of existing. Right. Well, right, exactly. And like you in that like that's just a fascinating thing to start to I, I really am fascinated by that idea because really the, your ability to start reading this in in the broadest sense as sort of a a not just like talking about spy, you know, spies and 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 uh, espionage and that sort of stuff, but really talking about society as a whole and like what these powers represent with regards to the lives of the audience that's reading this book. Right, right. I mean, or and in that this regard, in this case, but you know what I mean. It's an interesting companion piece to Missing that we watched right, three right, weeks absolutely. ago. Absolutely. Right. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it. Donovan, but but missing is uh, it's a Costagabras film uh, from uh, nineteen what was it eighty eighty three? Oh, goodness. I think don't ask out. me the dates of things. Um, but anyway, it is it is based on the true actual happenings of a young American journalist uh, who was living in Chile uh, as the uh, as. Uh, Allende's power fell and Pinochet came to power with American backing. And the film itself is the story of the man's wife and the man's idealistic American father come down to Chile to try to find him, not knowing that he's already dead. Uh, And all of their interactions are with American government officials in Chile Uh, and all uh, giving them the runaround about this investigation and how they're looking for him and then come to find out he was dead two weeks before dad even got to the country. Right, and, yeah. and, yeah. and the Americans have known the entire time. And in fact, he was killed by the coup and there is no way they would have killed him without America's explicit approval 
right? Because they're not going to wait. <laughs> they're not going to risk that. Yeah, war not going to risk killing an American like, citizen, yeah. right? So, so it's and the uh, the American uh, ambassador at one point says to to the dad character, um, played by Jack Lemmon. It's really a fantastic cast too, um, but uh, but says, um, essentially, we are acting in your interest. This is this is your interest, right? This is when you sit at home. If you didn't have a personal involvement here, you wouldn't even care, and you would sit at home knowing that we are doing the good and proper thing, right? Um, and that's the same thing here. It's, it's just it's not it's not about you know they are true believers, but they are true believers in the naked power here, right? There's no there's no actual morality to what they believe. There is just who has power and the, uh, the East Germans here are, are in the same position. Right. And yeah, yeah. it's, it's about power and we can see that, you know, in, in the Soviet bloc stuff, in the, in the films we've other films we've seen from the Soviet bloc that, that the Soviets, uh, at a point during the code war, particularly under Stalin, but, but, uh, it took a while to recover. Uh, they are they are interested in the naked power and even exercising that naked power against other communists. So we get the works of, say, Wajas, who wants to make explicitly communist films and is convinced that they will be suppressed under Soviet rule, right? right? Uh, because the Soviets, in his experience, are not actually communists. They are just interested in the power, right? Whereas Nan here, Nan here is, believes in history. She says right. she believes in the proletariat. She believes in uh, the future. She has hope here, and she believes in communism as as the path to that future. And you know, maybe it's not surprising that she doesn't ask any questions when a charity pays her least, because ideally, that's the system she wants, right? Free housing yes. from right. from an un. From uh, a source that you know is beyond her power anyway, right? That's the collectivism. Um, whereas you know the sort of actual true believers in capitalism that we see are what the shop owner who <laughs> who doesn't give a line of credit to the drunk guy who has no money who comes well, in. Well, I mean, but that's the thing, um, right? Is that like somebody like uh, we don't get it in the movie, but like control in theory, is a true believer in capitalism in the sense that the reason I say that is because we, unlike, I mean, you do get sort of ideologues of capitalism, but most of the time you just get the, this is the only system. It is still, it is still an ideologue of the power of the West. And it's not necessarily, if, if that power structure decided that, something that is very clearly an anti-capitalist notion of, say, uh, taking land from proper legal title holders of that land for for whatever process they want. Right. You know? Well, yeah, I mean, keep, they, keep in mind, like, when we talk about, like, something like the concept of global Western capitalism or something like that, right, we're not right. talking, we're talking about, about a power structure quote-unquote, capitalist rights of individual landholders, you know what I mean? Like, but what... What I mean, what I mean to say is that is the the difference between the capitalist of the shop owner and the capitalist of right, control. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I the guess, same yeah, as the difference between be the communist and the concept yeah. of capitalism 
as a as a philosophical point. Right. But like he probably right. isn't, right? Like that's the thing. And right? he probably isn't true. Like, that's fair. But whereas somebody like control is is actually a true believer in the sense that uh in my sort of perspective, in the sense that he believes in Western power. And because those right. two things are inexorably entangled together, control must by by the nature right. of right. what he is protecting like with disreg- total disregard for the lives of anything any human being must be a true believer in western power right which is right. which is itself a belief in sort of capitalism and of course that you know doctrine. it is a belief in capitalism but it is a belief the belief is in the power, right? Absolutely, more than the yeah. Is in the but like, yeah, I, right. I, I'm just because my argument is, is capitalism for a select class of people, right? Yeah, I, 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 my argument is just that those, that power is disentangleable right. from that thing, right? Right, 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 right. right. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Nan, Nan's an interesting character here. I really, yeah, it's just, it's yeah. Fantastic. Nan is really has um, Nan is thing. like, like Gase is basically and the just, only person when allowed yeah. to like definitely 100 percent right. like. everything about the pacing of this movie it's just it's it's so well played out i i assume obviously it's you know not <laughs> it's not a eight hour miniseries so i assume there is a lot plot wise excised from the book there's not a ton um it's not it's actually not that long of a novel okay. um it's it's way there's some but um you know they condense some of the stuff uh there's a bit of the stuff with Fiedler that's condensed or, or cut out, but it's to be, a, you know, it's mostly more the same. It's kind of their, yeah. their tete-a-tete, back-and-forth stuff. Um, there's a bit of a chunk, uh, you know, there's a decent-sized chunk, I guess, with the initial handler that he has from from the East Germans, uh, the who's, you know, Ash, the guy who he... The... Yes, the, the... You didn't have any... Uh, drink with your supper and i didn't have any supper with my drink uh that guy that he's riding the car with uh the initial questioner um uh who we later see uh has contempt for fiedler as a jew and who fiedler uh sort of puts in check by a a childish display of dominance by making him (laughs) get up and hand him the notebook right right Uh, right right um so uh, it, there's some stuff with that guy that's cut out, which you know ultimately is is more procedural than anything else, but right. and therefore stuff that you can afford to get rid of for the for the film. But um, not not a ton really. And again, yeah. they condense some stuff. It's like a it's a six or seven page conversation that is, for example, reduced to a single thirty five second monologue uh, right. by from him. But and of course, uh, I actually think it works better uh, as a sort of enraged tipping point monologue where he right, just snaps right, right. and lets her have it about like how fucking stupid do you have to be before you get what's going on here kind of a thing. Right. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, I don't think there's actually that much that they, yeah. that they trim out. Now, they trim also, out some of the stuff with him in the, in being in jail and, and that kind of thing. Right. Is, uh, is the novel more explicit that he has, that his going to jail and his his drinking, to an extent, is part of a cover 
to get involved with? Uh, yes, it is. It's one of those like, uh, again, we are meant to find control all the more villainous in that he knows that Lemus is burnout and an alcoholic and right. so cynical that he's basically at the end of his tether. Uh, which is why at the end we sort of realized the controls masterstroke was like uh, getting rid of a guy that might have wound up being a liability down the road anyway, even after he was out of the service. Right. Just expending him altogether because again, if he dies, oh well. Um, right. You know, we're not going to have this guy who probably is going to spiral off further into alcoholism and become a security risk. So, yeah. uh, yes, we get the sense that like he is barely keeping it together and it is partially an act but it is an act that's very easy for him to do because right. he is in right. fact that guy right 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 he's just dialing up his natural tendencies a bit um with what little is left of his self-control right which is what burton himself is doing in playing this yes role, so. which is why yes this is yeah. the most burton role because it is just burton <laughs> being told yeah you don't really have to act here just say the lines i guess right 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 <laughs> Uh, not to say that he's not a good actor, but no, he's, he's a great actor. But I just think it's 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 a real um, it it's uh it's a real Robert Downey Jr. plays alcoholic party <laughs> right, boy right, right, uh, right, right, Tony right. Stark, where like right. uh, the concept that he's acting rather than just saying the lines at the appropriate sequence, uh, you know, it, it right. comes naturally. We'll say, uh, so. Uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's, you can't, once you've sort of seen the film, I, th I think it is one of the most incredible bits of casting possibly ever. And certainly for the car stuff or the car stuff, because once you've seen it, you cannot go back to the book and not have like Alec picture or Alec, um, Lemus e equals Richard Burton, like immediately transposed in your mind's eye. Right. Like you can't, he, it's a character that like is permanently recast even in your own brain when you read the book from that point on. Right. Right. That makes sense. So, uh, whereas famously this guy playing Smiley was one and done. <laughs> yeah. Right. Uh, never shows up again. Uh, even when, you know, later on, um, and it's kind of an interesting, take on smiley with the mustache i mean he's got the the central things of like being sort of out of shape and unassuming looking and the big glasses but beyond that uh is kind of an interesting take yeah. on smiley physically with the mustache and the hat and everything else it's also playing a younger smiley than we traditionally see uh smiley in the books in most of his books is like you know the whole character archetype is the elder statesman Mm -hmm. guy who's like sort of semi-retired or actively retired uh in various books you know is it is not him in the flush of his career the way he is here yeah smiley here looks like uh a children's show character named george smiley more than more than a right. smiley <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah just sort of uh my amenable sort right. of you know yeah. he could be mr mcfeely in in a different hat right so uh but yeah like a thing that i was not aware of but might be um i i, I want to now i want to look at his picture one more time because um this is going to be a really weird thing to say but there is a um i don't know if you've ever seen uh if you've ever seen um the star trek series deep space nine yeah uh, 
what's his name? Uh, the guy who plays uh, Engineer O'Brien uh, in that. Oh, get, yeah. Gets yeah, called. Yeah. Gets start. They start calling him Smiley uh, because that's it, it's they don't they don't in the series. That's what he's called in the Mirror Universe, but um, which is just the fucking worst thing I've ever said in my entire life. Um, but uh, <laughs> he he kind of looks like this guy in this movie specifically. Yeah. Uh, the book, I think, plays hide-and-seek with it being Smiley. I, it's been, I haven't read the book since probably 2012. Uh, but I want to say that it is Smiley that... Uh, you know, you you sort of meet Smiley, or no, I don't think you even meet him. Like, he is um, maybe around for that initial scene with Control, right? Uh, which is a bit longer in the book, where it's sort of like, oh, we're going after Munt. Uh, you know, you remember he, you know, was here under, you know, disguised in the East German steel mission, and like, you know, he killed our killed one of our guys, and he tried to kill Smiley, and like, you know, we're this is our plan to get, like, you know, he's there, I think, for that initial briefing. Yeah. Um, but I think the fact that it's him that's then doing sort of the legwork to set up Nan uh, and all that other stuff is hidden. You, there's a guy, but you don't know it's Smiley until the right. end. It's like the fact that Smiley was in on it the whole time and what that says about Smiley is another is sort of a, you know, part of the huge gut punch at the end when the full scope of the double cross the double 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 cross is revealed right. to Lemus, like in, yeah. you know when and and he maybe doesn't even realize it's Smiley until he gets to the wall, right? right. Yeah, and that makes hears sense. Smiley saying "Jump, man, jump!" Like you know, in the book, they never it, the book never says Smiley was standing there. It's he heard a voice, you know, he heard a voice from the other side of the wall. Jump, man, jump! Right, uh, and he and he you know he doesn't. He climbs back down. And then it sort of reveals offhandedly that it was like, and it's like, and then, you know, Smiley heard the gunshots and walked away. It never like in the moment tells you well, it's Smiley. And, and yeah, it's in, revealed a, as an in a book that yeah. makes a lot of sense, right? Like that's a yeah. much better way to write that. Yes, than that like, is a major, I think yeah. that is maybe the only change they made here, but they kind of like the fact that it's Smiley, the movie standing alone doesn't really have any major weight you're you like he is just a right. functionary of control you get right that he's another agent right and you don't that, spend a lot of time with smiley as a whole in this movie enough no, to even build up an idea that they're like friends yeah, or something he's right so the note the the fact like there's no real point to hiding that it's smiley right. in the movie yeah. and since you don't have an entire prior novel's worth of history about smiley about smiley versus munt that whole caper uh, like, you know, in the, yeah, like you said, in a book revealing that it was Smiley was in on it all along and therefore like what that says about Smiley's willingness to, again, the only rule is expediency. Yesterday he tried to kill me today. I'm willing to kill you to preserve him. Right. Uh, is, you know, part of the book's major, you know, climax sort of double cross bit. But yeah, I, th I think that's the only really, I'm trying to think of if there's any other major departures from the book. And I think that's probably it is just that, which again, like you said, for a movie, it doesn't make any, it doesn't matter and it doesn't make any sense. So. Right, right, right. Yeah. Very interesting. So as a side note, just because I forgot his name, the name of the person who plays, uh, plays O'Brien, Chief O'Brien is Cole Meany. 
and he is. There you I go. think he looks a little bit like Smiley in this movie specifically. Not a lot. Yeah. Just a little bit. I mean, calling calling him Smiley in the Mirror Universe, though, is probably just a joke on the actor's last name. Yeah, no, I know. Uh, it, yes, but. it is. But it, But my brain, because formed a weird association where I'm like, well, this guy looks close enough to this guy who I I do recognize as being a character named Smiley that my brain did weird things and essentially basically implanted Cole Meany's face into the movie <laughs> as Smiley, which is a whole a whole nother weird phenomenon in and of itself. Very interesting. I, I, Very I shazammed myself, basically. I did whatever that phenomenon's <laughs> called. So as yeah, far as I'm concerned, yeah. he's out of time and in this movie somehow. Yeah. Many years out of sync with his own timeline. Well, you know, since Star Trek is a true story, that's not all. Right, yeah. He, I mean, the Chief O'Brien traveled back in time and is in a movie. Yeah. It's easy enough. This yeah. whole movie is just, uh, just a... Uh, uh, you know, hologram, holodeck thing. Yeah, yeah, it, makes, it all checks out. <laughs> yeah. Uh, anyway, um, do we have anything else? We no, really I can talk, talk about because I think some we're more, but I don't think I need to. <laughs> no, no, I think we're good. Donovan, you got anything? You got anything <laughs> no, else you just, want to throw out? I don't think so. Um, I think we're pretty. You know, we've, I think we've, we've covered everything. This one out. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm pretty, the score I'm pretty obviously satisfied. is. Oh yeah, score is very good. Score is great. <laughs> yes. The cinematography is incredible. Uh, I mean, this movie um, is extremely well constructed. It just is. It is. It is yeah. rock solid. Oh, one more. One more note on the cinematography. Uh, Oz did one. One other movie of of interest. Uh, he also is the director of photography on The Man with the Golden Gun. Oh, interesting. Uh, okay. Yeah. So um, um, <laughs> he uh, he jumped ship to the to the other side. So to, to the speak. flashier. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, the man. The man did the work that was offered to him. I'm sure. Right. Oh yeah. Listen. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I think it's sort of the it is it is the I think in some ways, um, you know, I think you could probably divide La Carre into two into sort of two subcategories. Um, And this one admittedly straddles the line a little bit. There's kind of like the greater smiley arc. And then there's his standalone books. Um, mm-hmm. you know, standalone stories, so to speak. Um, and, uh, which obviously encompasses basically all of his stuff that is set post cold war. Um, but I think that of his cold war stuff, um, and I say this even given my extreme fondness for a small town in Germany of his cold war stuff, I think this is sort of like the quintessential self-contained cause it is really Lemus's story. Right. Yeah. Which is why it works as a standalone movie without the prior novel's worth of information, uh, which, again, is really only referenced in extremely condensed summary fashion in the meeting with Control. Like, oh, you know, Moon was here. He blah, blah, blah. He made, he escaped the end. Um, uh, I, I think this is, yeah, this is the quintessential Lacare, especially Cold War. Uh, thing, which is why it just works so well from start to finish uh, as a self-contained story. Without you, don't need anything else to get its themes. Uh, all of the uh, parts are chosen by are, are given to people who just sort of like naturally inhabit the role without really needing. Like you get the sense that all of these performances are incredibly naturalistic. Uh, 
which is, again, funny when you consider that uh, Control is played by an Irishman who is intentionally dialing up the mustache twirling because he views the, <laughs> yeah. the English as psychopathic sadists and like evil incarnate. Right. Naturalistic. Um, yes. But again, like his <laughs> ability to channel his self-perception of what the English are right. fits perfectly. So, uh, you know, a, a cultured, sophisticated measured soft-spoken guy who is you know talks a good game about like how like well you know we do unpleasant things but it's all for the greater good and how that is masking a like full-blooded sociopath uh right you know for whom no amount of bloodshed or cruelty or death is too much in furtherance of what he thinks is uh you know in everybody's best interest so, uh, yeah, I think all the rules, even the bit rules, you know, therefore, like even control, like who has one scene, I just think everything is incredibly well cast and done. And again, it keeps a lot. It doesn't not perhaps as faithfully as some other stuff, but it, there is a good chunk of Lacare's text uh, and dialogue kept pretty well word for word here. Right. Right. Yeah. It's a it's a faithful adaptation. Even yeah. If it, it does cut a little bit. But, yeah, you know, it's so kind of cut I, a little I, bit. I think that so. for all those reasons, yeah, I would yeah, say, like, fantastic. If you, you know, if you only have just one, this is the one. <laughs> yeah, it's a good but one. But don't have just one. Read, you know, see the yeah. rest of his stuff. I, I think mean, most just, of his adaptations are pretty good. I will, uh, big caveat, do not see, uh, except if you are really in, really willing to commit to just something that is, like, sort of just generally boring and unpleasant. <laughs> and But it's also, like, a weird... Uh, almost experimental filmmaking in parts with like long dialogueless stretches and stuff. Okay. Um, the adaptation of the Looking Glass War. Okay. Which is the mo- which is the novel that immediately succeeded uh, this one in in time. Uh, also, a incredibly tiny, smiley bit part cameo at the end for like one scene and maybe six lines of dialogue total. So yeah. it also gets the a George Smiley novel branding on it these <laughs> right. days. Um, a movie that is even more horrific about the co- like cruelty and callousness with which the West disposes of its own people expendably is in this case when they know better and know that this guy is like. If Lemus was arguably, like, you know, past his point of no return, the next novel is expressly about bringing a guy back out of retirement who has no business being in the modern espionage game so that they can expend him because he's expendable. Yeah. Um, and uh, the, the, uh, the, it is a wildly inaccurate. <laughs> except in the, except in the very broadest strokes wildly inaccurate um adaptation a bizarre young anthony hopkins like yeah. late 60s early 70s uh role like compl- i think almost completely forgotten from his filmography <laughs> by most people uh probably even himself um like again in the book the whole point is they bring an older guy out of retirement in the film it's like a younger man that it's basically a young inexperienced guy rather than a guy who they're playing on the fact that he thinks he's still up to it when he yeah. very much is not um like they give him like one of the climaxes is they gave him like intentionally out they gave him outdated and uh and 
you know, surpassed radio equipment to do his signaling with. So he's like almost immediately detected by the enemy (laughs) because they've been picking, they've figured out how to pick up on those radio signals, like since right after world war two. But it was the last thing this guy used. So they send him in with it kind of a thing. Um, I would say if you're going to avoid one, that's the real stinker. Uh, But uh, this is excellent. Um, both Tinker Taylor adaptations are excellent, although for sort of completely different reasons. Right. Uh, I think a most wanted man is excellent. Uh, if you're going to, if, if you can, um, uh, Willem Dafoe all, toying with, but never really committing to a German accent <laughs> in that movie. As he Good. is, as he is want to do. Yeah. As an actor. Uh, in Philip general. Seymour Hoffman doing a, doing an accent that like you sort of internalize as German, but if you ever paid attention to it is not really expressly a German accent, um, which Lacare in the forward to the, to the book, the reissuance of the book as says like, is what makes it perfect because it's like, he is this guy from nowhere. Yeah. Like oh, he is great. He is fr- his accent is from the land of, in- of intelligence and espionage and the shadow world. It is like, he has so been, he has been so steeped in that dark realm for so long. Even the nationality of his accent <laughs> has slowly been eroded and replaced with a guy who lives in the shadow realm full time. Excellent. Uh, Excellent. Yes. Oh, that's uh, so that's, that's, that was uh, yeah. very good. Obviously um, I think it won an Oscar or some Oscars. The constant gardener uh-huh. is sort of the prototypical, uh, you know, late period post nine 11, you know, post cold war, Lucare, uh, film in that regard, you know, the night manager, I think is well done for what it is, but sort of botches the landing in such a way that right, 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 makes right. it not a very good adaptation yeah. on the whole, uh, makes it an okay espionage mini series, but not a particularly great Lacare adaptation. Right. Um, well, I, I don't think the criterion collection gives us any other Lacare adaptation. I doubt it. I, I'm trying to think and I like, I don't, I yeah. can't think of anything else that would be, we also don't get anything criterions. else from the director Mitt here. Uh, yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so this yeah. is as this far is... as like the Criterion Collection is concerned, this is essentially a one and done affair. Like, <laughs> I, right, I was right, going right, to say, right. it's probably one and done, which is why I guess I'll just say, uh, you know, but, I'll get out all my Lacare bits while I got them. Well, that I, makes, yeah, that yeah. makes your statements all the more impactful because you got this is your chance. This is it. This there is there was a Ewan McGregor and. Uh, God, who plays the bad guy in uh, Showtime's insane soapy camp drama Billions? Oh, oh uh, I don't. Damien? Giam- no, Damien. Paul Giamonte? Is that? No, no, no the yeah, other, no, the other the, lead. I'm sorry. Yeah, the other. Damien Lewis, I think, the British guy. Okay. Also in um, Band of Brothers. Okay, I know who you're talking about now, yes. but I can't think of his name either. That guy and Ewan McGregor and Stellan Skarsgård are in, uh, I believe, the like. In and out of theaters, blinked and you missed it. Not particularly successful. Uh, our kind of traitor, which is another modern day Lacare okay. uh, one. It's you know I don't think it's particularly great, but it's not it's not uh, the Looking Glass War, which is just <laughs> a, a, which is not just an abysmal adaptation. It is an abysmal film yeah. that is really only I would really only recommend it if you want to look at like an example of the sort of experimental 
trippy filmmaking of the era gone wrong like a bad version of it and also uh, be like i can't believe anthony hopkins was once like doing stuff like this but it seems like we may have to do a bonus list of other lacare adaptations i was looking glass war is is probably going to win that one so uh so we look forward to having you talk to us about it on a bonus episode in the future which which one did you say you think is going to (laughs) win i missed that the Looking Glass War, the one he's, he's oh, just one. told us is terrible. Um, a, a bizarre, uh, just just a quick preview for the audience. It includes Anthony Hopkins saying to a group of these sort of sinister British people that at the end of the, that he's stormed in on or whatever, I forget how it happens. He's just like, it's like monkey's brains for you people, which I don't think is a line from the book. <laughs> it's, Perfect. it's just what he it's, said when he arrived just on what he said. I, forget, I don't think that's uh, in the novel. I think that might have just been... Something that's Hop- screenwriter that's Hopkins' blo- breaking character in that yes. moment. It's just it's... one of his. Oh, Donovan, it has been such a joy. Uh, always is. Uh, thank you for joining us. We have been talking about The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, uh, directed by Martin Ritt from 1965. Uh, next week, we will, uh, d- we've got another guest lined up, uh, longtime supporter, friend of the show, uh, uh, Jason Westhaver, will be joining us to talk about Chungking Express. Uh, by uh, Wong Kar Wai. Uh, Criterion just released a new box set uh, with the Wong Kar Wai. Uh, right, stuff which apparently I may have to try to avoid watching the, the new version of. I'm not <laughs> clear on this. There's some color correction issues. Uh, yeah, but from I saw some of the color but, corrections, uh, like just screenshots. And I was like, what, what is happening here? Yeah. Wong Kar Wai, uh, we'll talk about this more yeah. next week, I'm sure. But Wong Kar Wai uh, is. He is doing. Yeah, the I color understand that. This is I him. That. This is him. What well, we we know from experience, and you, that in, doesn't necessarily mean anything. Right. Exactly. I've, how right, many right, versions right. of Lord of the Rings? And <laughs> right, right, like right. Right. One's right, basically right. black and white, and the other's fuchsia. <laughs> right, like, right. 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 Exactly. They advertise every time they advertise like Peter Jackson got dug out of wherever he's at and forced <laughs> and it. it we found the hiding hole he's in right now. But we. But we do look forward to that. We, uh, we've we only watched one Wong Kar Wai film for the podcast so far. Uh, We're going to find out whether or not I've and... seen Chungking Express because I'm not yes. sure. I want to say I've seen it, but if so, it yeah. was... I, I'm really, really hyper ago. uncertain yeah. about this one. I I'm feel yes and I feel no case. at the same time. So yeah, Donovan, thank you for joining us. And thank you so much, listeners, for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am, as always, Liam Glass. With me, as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorian. And we'll see you next time. Lost in Criterion. I'm your co-host Adam Glass. You can find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My partner is John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and you can find him at J Patrick Dorgan. Check out more of the show at lostincriterion.com or hey, give us a review on iTunes. It's nice. If you really like what you hear, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. 
Hey, our theme music is by Jonathan Hape. Check him out at jonathanhape.com. And thanks for listening. We appreciate it.